to Luke chapter 17. Uh, wasn't that good worship? I see some tears this morning. Was that great? Amen. It really sets us up for this lesson. Luke chapter 17. Let's read verses 1 through 10 as we continue in our sermon on uh, parable stories of Jesus. Luke chapter 17 says this. Jesus said to his disciples, Occasions for stumbling are bound to come, but woe to anyone by whom they come. It would be better for you if a millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea than for you to cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. If another disciple sins, you must rebuke the offender, and if there is repentance, you must forgive. And if the same person sins against you seven times a day and turns back to you seven times a day and says, I repent, you must forgive. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord replied, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. Who among you would say to your slave who has just come in from plowing or tending sheep in the field, come here at once and take your place at the table? Would you not rather say to him, prepare supper for me? Put on your apron and serve me while I eat and drink. Later you may eat and drink. Do you thank the slave for doing what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were ordered to do, say, we are worthless slaves. We have done only what we ought to have done. Now, that's the parable. There is a parable here, but it's the parable of the slave and the master. But the parable actually lies within a discussion and there's a conversation preceding this parable that gives us a clue about what the meaning of the parable is. Jesus is talking to his disciples about how to behave as a Christian, how to behave as disciples, how to behave when you're out in the world and you're a Christian. And many preachers have split up these stories and given a sermon to each one, like a sermon about not causing others to stumble, a sermon about forgiving one another. But this is what he does. First of all, and that's fine, by the way, but we're not going to do that. What Jesus does is, first of all, he, he starts off by talking about how, to, how easy it is to fall into sin and then become a stumbling block for others. Now, this is, we all know this, right? When Christians right, don't behave like Christians, other Christians who are less anchored into the faith can fall away. And I think many of you, and maybe probably more of you who aren't here, would say, yes, I've experienced that. Like, that's why I don't go to church anymore. That's maybe why I put the faith away, is because I've seen how Christians act towards one another. Isn't that true? Amen? And when that happens, people get really hurt, especially, especially those who haven't grown up in the faith. And Jesus is saying here to those Christians, he says, if you're one of those Christians that cause others to stumble, if, if you hurt my little lambs, my young Christians, well, it's like you may as well go drown in the sea. Like, you've done worse than just living. You see, you've actually hurt the cause. And then he flips that coin because there's the other side of the coin. And he says, well, let's take the other perspective. What if somebody hurts you, though? What if somebody sins against you? And so what he's saying there is he's saying, if you happen to be the little one, don't be little. You see, if you happen to be the one who gets hurt by sin, then you forgive. You don't fall away. You, you don't repay sin for sin. You forgive. If the person says to you, you know, you're right, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that, then you say, okay, that issue. You don't bring it up again. You divorce yourself from that wrong. 
But then Jesus gets crazy here. I mean, like he's crazy because he says, if you do, if that person does it again, seven times a day comes up to you and says, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that, but I did it again. I'm sorry, I shouldn't. Jesus says, if they do that, and seven times a day they come up and say, I'm really sorry, I can't help myself, but I keep hurting you. He says, you have to forgive them seven times a day. Like, that's crazy talk. And that's why the, the, the disciples say, increase our faith. Right? Now, let me explain this. <coughs> because I think the parable holds these two Christian conduct messages together. Now, they're both the same sides of the coin, but that's why Jesus tells the parable. What Jesus is saying here, in, in terms of Christian conduct, he says, if you're a Christian, if you love me, don't hurt others, but also don't be hurt by others. Do you see that message? He's saying, don't give offense towards others, but also don't take offense. Don't be a victimizer, please, but also don't be a victim. Okay? Don't take a... like. If you cause, don't cause others to fall, but also, please, don't fall because of the actions of others. Forgive. And it's so crazy, this message. I mean, if you take that coin and put it in your pocket, you're saying, I can't do that. And that's why the disciples understood that, and they said, increase our faith. Now, the word for faith here is pistis. It's a Greek word that simply means increase our trust, increase our belief that this can be that this can happen. And what they're, what they're saying, essentially, is they're saying, this seems impossible. They're saying exactly what you should be saying to me. Like, and I know some of you are looking at me like that. Like, okay, we can't do this. Great. Because you're hearing it correctly, and they're hearing it correctly, and they're saying, okay, forget this. This is crazy. So give us the magic pill. Like, what's the red pill, the blue pill, whatever it takes that I can do. This. Sprinkle fairy dust on us. Pray for us. Help us to just do this, because I, we can't understand how somebody can do this. Help us to trust more. Help us to believe more in these concepts, these doctrinal concepts. And Jesus shuts it down in a very harsh way. And what he says through the parable is what he's saying is he's saying, you know, it's not a magic pill. It's actually not the amount of belief that you have. It's actually not the amount of trust you have because he says that you already have what it takes to command trees to move and be uprooted and go somewhere else. So what he's saying here is it's not the size of your trust. It's not the size of your belief. It's not the size of your faith. It's not that you just need to really, really, really believe. You need to really, really, really have faith in it. He says, in fact, it's not a feeling at all, and it's not hoping at all. So what is it? And I think you know the answer. He gives the answer. He says, and this is, and I'll prove it through the sermon, but in essence, the point of the message is, the big concept is, he says, if you want to be able to do these things, here's what you do. You have to know your place in the kingdom, and you have to simply do what I tell you to do. And the disciples are saying, increase our faith. And Jesus looks back at them and says, no, no, increase your obedience. Do you see the difference? And he says that through the teaching of a parable. He says that Christian conduct, both not stumbling and also not causing others to stumble and being able to forgive others when they cause you to stumble. The key to unlock those secret doors in your life, because those are huge doors in the Christian life, both of those. Like, how do I not sin and how do I forgive others when they sin against me? He says the keys to those doors do not lie primarily through having more faith or having more trust, but in having an attitude of obedience through servanthood to Christ as Lord. Because every sin 
the sin that we do that hurts others, and, and the unforgiveness that we keep when we don't want to forgive others comes from the same place. It comes from not knowing our place. It comes from not being obedient. And it comes from there just as much as it comes from somebody saying, well, it comes from a lack of faith. Well, that's true, but what does faith mean, you see? And so we're going to talk about this. And because it's so stark and harsh, and this is my, you know, I missed a Sunday and I'm back, and you're like, great, like, that's, this guy's back. Let me, let me soften this a bit. There are metaphors in the Bible, all over the Bible, that explain our relationship with God. And some of those metaphors are really sweet and really kind and, and need to be talked about. And they're easier to digest. Even the one that says, you know, we're like sheep. And I've tried to make that sound like a bad thing, and it kind of is. But we kind of like that thought. Or I could talk about how the Bible says we're joint heirs with Christ, right? Amen? Which means we have this great kingdom we're going to. We're, we're going to be kingdom dwellers, the Bible says. And that's a relationship with God. The Bible tells us that we're his children, that's a sweet and kind thought. The Bible tells us that we're the crown jewel of his creation. That's wonderful. The Bible tells us that we are his bride, that we're beautiful. And all of those metaphors are true, and all of those are in the Bible, and all of those are easier to preach about, and we like all of those. But we can't get away from this metaphor. Because what Jesus is saying is that the, thing, the things that he's going to ask us to do when we walk with him are no longer optional. We don't have a choice, in other words. He cuts us short. We can't say, well, <clears throat> okay, let me come into the kingdom and maybe I'll do this, maybe I'll do that. Let me think about it. Let me consider my options. Let me consult my, with my personal advisors. Let me see if this is the pragmatic thing to do. Let me see if this is going to benefit me somehow. No, 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 Jesus says. Though these are things that are not a matter of consideration and has nothing to do with how you feel. How you feel isn't important right now. He's saying, come into the kingdom and be slaves to your master. We do what we're told to do. And this message is about as countercultural as you can get today. Now, another caveat. I've always said that correct theology, this is what you know, one of my early Bible teachers told me. He said, there can be more truth that's found in any one scripture, but there can't be any less. Does that make sense? There can be more truth than found in any one scripture, but there can't be any less truth than what you found in that scripture. Does that make sense? And, and, and this is what good theology does. You look in your Bible, and sometimes, you know, we have bad, like, congregations can make bad theology because they point to one verse and say, this is true, and that's all. So let me give you an example. You might get in your scripture and you say, well, how do I, how do I, how, how does salvation come to me? And you might find a scripture that says, confess your sins. And you say, that's it, confess your sins. Or you find another scripture that says, repent. And you say, that's all, you have to repent, whatever that means. And then you say, another one says, believe. Okay, all I need to do is believe. But what does believe mean? Another one says, be baptized so that you can receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Okay, that's what I need to do. Now, <clears throat> a good theologian doesn't pit those against one another, nor do, do they pull one out and say, this is it, but this one isn't it. And by the way, most denominations, the reason we have denominations is because they've done that. They said, this is it, and this isn't it. And the other denomination says, well, this says this, but let's forget that one. Okay. Now, what we need to do, good theology kind of pulls them together and tries to harmonize with them, and if there's tensions, tensions there, then we can live in the tension a little bit. But we pull them together. So then we say, well, boy, salvation, it's a lot about, isn't it? About believing and repenting and having faith and confessing and being baptized and all of those things that you do when you walk into the family of God. 
The scripture shows us, this is what I'm pointing to now today, the scripture shows us that yes, there is more, much more, listen to this, much, much more to being a Christian than being a servant to God. Much, much more. It's so beautiful to be a Christian. But what Americans need to hear sometimes is that it is at least that, right? Because that's the part we want to skip over. There's much, much more to being a Christian than to being his servant, but it's at least that. It's at least being a slave to God, and we can't skip over that. We can't option out of that truth. I love my children. I really do. And they're wonderful children because I'm their dad, and I think that. But <clears throat> I also know that being a parent, that you realize, and Heather knows this as well. In fact, she probably knows it better than I do. That as a child grows, they will be motivated more and more as they mature by being obedient because they love you, right? Now, I loved my children the minute they were born. They didn't love me. I loved them immediately. I'm the one that started the love relationship. But they will grow to love me through their life. But listen, you don't ask a child to obey you because he loves you. Like you, That's not the starting, the building block of the relationship. Let me tell you, if you have a four-year-old or a five-year-old that wants to run into the road, I've never seen a good parent say, oh, Olivia, stop. Livy, do you love me? Livy, do you love your daddy? Please, then please don't go into that road. Are you kidding me? Right? Crash. Done. Right? I need, I need Olivia to what? Obey. I say, Livy, no. And she, she stops. So when children are little, they are not motivated to put their shoes on faster for you because you need to leave by love for you. They're not going to brush their teeth for you because they love you. They're not going to be quiet in their room at night because they love you. Right? You can't go up and say, please, your mom and I, we're so tired of raising you. And we just, we just want time to ourselves. And if you really love... No, that's our secret stuff. Right? I just need to go up and say, be quiet. Stop. Okay? Now, later in life, they will learn... After that primary relationship is set, they will learn to obey out of love for me. And I know how this is because I'm 47. It's probably been just the last 10 years of my life that I have actually felt motivated to obey my own dad in ways that I've done it because I love him, not because I felt like I needed to. And, and that grow, you grow as a child and you start to love back the person that is your master if they loved you all along. Now, so my kids learn, obey. I'm not your friend. Okay, parents, don't do that. I'm not your friend first. First, there's an authority. We'll get to the friend part later, and it'll be wonderful. But first, there's an authority. I'm not making suggestions to you right now. You're not going to understand right now. Just obey. And modern people hate this when it comes to a relationship with Jesus Christ. We hate to hear that. I don't know why, but whenever we hear things like obedience or that four-letter word, for, Lots of bad four-letter words, but one of them is duty. We especially hate it, when it because it clashes with our ideals, our idealism about love and choice and freedom and being progressive and autonomous and entitled and empowered. So this is a harsh teaching, but it's absolutely necessary, and I want to help us to understand it. So let me give you some ways to think about our relationship with Christ, three points that I see here. And here's what I'm going to say. Stay with me to the end, because the first point you're going to go, uh, and the second point you're going to go, uh, and then the third point you're going to go, ah, okay? So stay with me. First point, to be a Christian, to be in a relationship with God, means that you understand the primary building block relationship with God, the primal 
relationship that we have with God. The Greek word that Jesus uses here for servant is the word doulos. Um, and if you maybe even just from preachers, you've heard that word before. That word means slave. It actually means indentured servant. Now, if you lived in their day, you knew exactly what a doulos was. So Jesus tells this prayer because, see, he's, he said, you know, there's Christian conduct that's important. Don't sin against others, and then when they sin against you, please forgive them. And then he says, here, let me give you an example. A farmer owns a doulos, an indentured servant. And when that doulos comes in from the field, that doulos has been plowing, let's say, or tending the sheep, maybe all of those things, and it's a long, hard day. He comes in from the field, and he says, well, what does the farmer then say to him? Okay, consider that, congregation. Now, if the relationship, if the primary relationship is that that's your friend, what would you say to a friend that had just plowed your field and tended your sheep? You would say something like, oh my goodness, thank you so much, right? I can't believe you came over to do that for me. That's wonderful. Here, let me get you a glass of tea. Let me get you a sandwich. Is that what he says? No. Now, if the primary relationship is an employer and employee, the, the, the doulos, the, the, let's say he's an employee now, he comes in from the field, and what would the farmer say? The farmer would say, thank you. You've been a really good, faithful worker today. Here's your paycheck. I'll see you tomorrow. Okay? Is that what he says? No. And so Jesus says, because he's a slave, because the relationship is established, he says, as he comes in from the field, he says, essentially, he says, oh, you're not done yet. Please get me some tea. Please get me a sandwich. And then when you're done with that, you can take a break and eat your food. The farmer doesn't say thank you. The farmer doesn't pay him because he's not a friend and he's not an employee. He's a slave. Now, Calm yourself down, Americans. I know you're already getting upset by this because if you had a slave, you'd want to thank him anyway, wouldn't you? But listen, this slave doesn't expect to be thanked. He doesn't expect to be paid because he's just doing his job. He says to himself, the Bible says, I'm an unworthy slave. Of course, I don't expect anything from my master. My satisfaction is derived from doing what I ought to do. We miss this teaching in the church, don't we? Now, is that harsh? I think it is in our society, but I just want you to know that it wasn't harsh in their society. And so because it wasn't harsh when Jesus told it, then can you just give Jesus a chance here? Because if it's harsh for you and it's not harsh for his disciples, then maybe, just maybe, the issue is our culture and not his. And so we need to wrestle with that. This guy is a slave. Now, when you think of slave, one reason it might be harsh for us is because we think of slaves here, and, we, and, and this guy is not a slave because of the color of his skin. Had nothing to do with the color of his skin, has nothing to do with something that he couldn't control about himself or God did. Okay, this guy was a slave because he owed money. Because in their day, there was no such thing as bankruptcy, which, by the way, we probably shouldn't have today. My point. Because you couldn't just say, oh, I'm overextended. Do over, Right? Like, you couldn't do that in their day. You couldn't pretend that it didn't happen because real people needed to be really paid. So in their day, they were very careful with their money. What they did was they usually bartered. They swapped. I'll give you this if you give me that. There were lots of deals made because nobody really had lots of money. And if you did purchase something and you didn't have the money, you were very careful not to overextend yourself. And if you couldn't pay it back, if you were irresponsible and you bought more than what you could pay for or if something happened to you that you couldn't pay it out, then the creditor had two choices, and that was pretty simple in their day. The creditor could either put you in prison, and you or your family could pay off the debt, and you can get out of prison. That was the harshest way to do it. 
Or if you were a kind creditor, you simply said, no, 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 you're going to be a doulos now for me and you're going to work it off. In other words, your labor belongs to me. It's not like you belong to me because you're an, you know, less of a human being. It's simply paying off your... It's no different than what we would see today if maybe you did, couldn't pay your bill in a restaurant and the cook comes out and says, well, now you have to clean dishes, right? Now, we might think that's mean, but that's essentially what's happening here. It's like, no, this is honorable. Pay off your debt. Not because you're less of a human being, but because you owe me. And your labor is a way of paying off your debt, and for you to be honored, and for you to live a respectable life, you need to get that done. So this guy isn't being treated harshly. He's not being abused, he's not being victimized, he's not being beaten. That's why you don't see in the scripture that there's a harshness to it. He's being treated absolutely fairly and justly. He's being treated honorably. He's an unworthy slave, simply doing what he ought to do because he needed to do it to pay it off. Now, as a primary basis for understanding our relationship with God, I think we need to get this as Americans, and we, we simply don't. In other cultures, they do much better at this. God owes us nothing. Now, that's true if you're a Christian or if you're an atheist. That, that's true for anybody out there today who's not in church. Now, I think we understand, I think we think that we understand a bunch of, there's a lot of really smart people out there who think they know what's going on, and they don't. I read Colossians 1.17, and it says this, He is before all things, and in him all things are held together. When I read it, I think, you know what? What I don't understand, what scientists don't understand, is this whole world is being held together by God. Right? Like the reason our earth spins around the sun and we don't just fly off into space is because of God. The reason we don't fly off our planet is because of God. The reason our own DNA doesn't break apart and we become primordial soup this morning is because of God. Now, I know what you're going to say. You're going to say, oh, no, it's gravity. Okay. Gravity was discovered, not created, in the 1600s. So finally, it took us all those thousands and thousands of years to notice something and say, oh, gravity, we'll name it. Do you think when we named gravity, God said, oh, well, they created gravity? No, we simply found it. God is the one who holds all things together. I wish it wasn't called gravity. I wish we just called it God. We do nothing. We can't, you know, we can't make stuff. Not really. We say, well, look at the plane in the sky. Yeah, but we didn't make the sky. We didn't make the atmosphere. We didn't make the raw materials to make the plane. We can't make water. We can't make trees. We can't make anything to help us survive. We simply are living because of God. We're, so in other words... When we are born, we're all born in debt. The fact that God allowed us to be born means we're in debt. And I don't think we really understand that. Because we live in a society that the minute we're born, we say, well, you're you're so special, you're so wonderful. Atheist, Christian, it doesn't matter. The minute you're born, you're a born sinner from the Adamic race, and you you are against God and he's against you, you, and you are already in debt to him. Now, I think, I, t- I happen to think that the reason there's so much depression today and anxiety and worry and, and because it's rampant in our society right now, the amount of drugs and counseling and people that are hurting with their lives, why is that? Because I believe in our society, we're like those kids who have spun out of control thinking we need more and more. And this is really, really hard to combat in our society. It's hard to bring it back once it spins out of control. That's why a lot of people don't want to listen to what I'm saying right now. I think our sin nature is constantly fooling us. Our sin nature is constantly telling us to expect more and more. And you can see that if your kids are like that, parents in here, I know we make mistakes, but if your kid is saying, oh, I really, really want that, I really, really want that, 
You know what's going to happen, don't you? If you get it. Two weeks later, they don't care about it, and now they want something else or more. If you start a kid, if you go into a Walmart with a kid and they're four or five, and you get them something every time, you're in trouble. That means every time you go to a store, you have to buy something for your kid. Every time. Why? Because they were never brought that You never canceled it out and said, no, I don't owe you anything. I just want you to be with me, you see? But today, we change all of that. Today, marriage, listen, marriage used to be about a place where we propagated the human race. Now it's a place where I'm affirmed and loved and I know I'm special. And if I'm not affirmed and loved and know I'm special, maybe I don't have a good marriage. No, propagate the human race, you know? Jobs, jobs used to be simply a place where I earned an honest day's wage for an honest day's work. What is it today? Oh, I, I need to feel appreciated. I need to know that I'm special. I need to feel empowered. I need to know my way to the top. Like, does my boss really appreciate me? This is our culture that's done this. You know, church. Church used to be a place where you go, you got fed by the, the apostles' teaching, right? The word of God. And then you went out and you ministered in your society. But what's church now? Well, if it's not a place, what's your children's program like? What kind of music do they have? You know, people come in and they walk away. What? what is, what's going on? Church. What's, what's church for? Or, or think about kids. used to be like you have kids. The Bible says they're like quivers, right, and the arrows, right? Well, what's that for? Kids were simply to send out into the world to propagate your name and to propagate the kingdom and to be weapons used for God's kingdom. Now, oh no, I, I'm vicariously living through my children. I'm, everything they do is on Facebook because if they score a goal, I'm a winner as a parent. You see? I, I keep them close to me. I never want them to leave my side. They're, I'm going to fulfill my dreams through them because I never got a chance to get an education, so they will. Right? Like They're supposed to somehow complete me, and I could go on and on. And Jesus steps into this culture right today, the culture that we have, and he says, guys, this isn't about being happy. When you, if I, you find me one scripture where it says that being happy is something you get by coming into the kingdom. Jesus says, no, no, no. Do what you're told. Obey me. Now, our ancestors knew this. I mean, every poll, I was, I was working this week, <coughs> actually last week, and I was looking up online like different polls about happiness meters and ratings. And you can look that up yourself. But did you know that like, consistently, this is true, that our, the, the moment right now we are less happy than the decade before as people across the board. We are getting less and less happy every generation. And before us, the generation before this decade, they were much happier than this decade. And the centuries and the generations before them were happier than those generations. So, you know, people fighting in World War I and World War II were happier than we are. And, and people that lived back in the Civil War were happier than the people in World War II. And you go, what's happening? And we look back, and I don't know about you, but I say, how can that be true? Because people, if you look back, they're dying from plagues, right? Like, the scratches get infected and kids die. Like you had 12 kids and three make it, right? The lifespan was 47 or 50. And everybody's dying left and right. And yet they felt better about their lives. Why? Because they expected less out of life. Life, life cannot bear the weight of American expectations today. It's like a two-ton bridge with a 20-ton truck on it. Because everything about this life is trying to tell us that, that this is our home, and it's not. Our home is where we're going. Amen? 
And the next home can bear the weight of our expectations, but not this one. So we place our hopes there, not here. We reserve our hopes for there, not here. But here, Jesus says often, time and time again, he says, oh no, stop doing that. Just do your job. Just obey me. You see, what's happening here is the disciples are saying to their quote-unquote buddy, Jesus, help me. Like, give me the magic pill. And he's saying, I'm not your friend. It's not magic. Do what you're told, and I'll come in and help you. So that's what's happening here. That's first. told you that was a little hard, but that's what's happening. Now, secondly, we also must understand the primary attitude. Now, once we understand the relationship, it's easy to get the attitude. You see, we can't, it's hard to work backwards. It's hard to tell somebody to get the right attitude if they don't know the relationship. But if you know that you're a slave to the master, then the relationship, the, the attitude gets better. And a slave does what they're told without conditions, without expl- explanations, without expectations. You see, a slave isn't grouchy, are they? Because the primary relationship has already been established. That's why Jesus says in verse 10 to his disciples after this, he says, so you also, when you've done all that you were ordered to do. You see, that's what he's saying to his Christian friends. He's saying, when you also have done all that you are ordered to do. You don't expect a thank you. You shouldn't expect a paycheck. You shouldn't expect a party, you know. Not everybody gets a winning medal just because you played the game, right? That's, that's what we do. He says, you simply did what you were told to do. That's all. What, what am I thanking you for? My dad used to say that. He'd say, I'd say, Dad, I, I, did the, you know, I made my bed and I cut the grass. He said, okay, right? You did what you were supposed to do. Again, I've thought about the miracles of Jesus, <coughs> and because all of us have said this, we've said, boy, if Jesus lived today, his miracles would be so much better, right? Because we have news crews there, CNN, right? Fox. Like, it would be worldwide miracles. And then I started thinking about it. I thought, I don't think Jesus could perform a miracle today in America. You know why? Because they always required obedience. Look, look at the feeding of the multitudes. Just read that. It's in every gospel. He's ordering people around left and right. It makes no sense what he's asking people to do, but they're doing it. Everyone, sit down. You know, get in groups of whatever and, and have them sit. And then, and then, oh, there's some poor kid's lunch. Give, give me that food. You know, like, oh, what are you doing? It doesn't make sense. And then he tells the disciples to walk around and dispense in these baskets that with just these few things they are going to feed 15,000, 20,000 people. Now, if that were happening today in America, I guarantee if that was like a Billy Graham crusade, we would say... If we're in the crowd, we would say, uh, yeah, I'm not going to sit. I have my new shorts on, and I don't want to get grass stains on them. I'm, I, just, I know what he means, but I'm going to stand here. right? If you're one of the ones around Jesus, you would have said, uh, this doesn't make sense. Like, tell me, what, what's your plan here? I'm going to go out there, and I only have one piece of fish. It doesn't, I'm not doing this. It's dumb. I'm, I'm out of this. Like, two fish and five pieces of bread can't feed 20,000 people. I have a brain. No obedience. No miracle. Remember the blind man? Blind man, blind. The Bible says he's blind from birth. In other words, he's never seen his entire life. You think he's used to his blindness? Absolutely. You think he's probably been to lots of different healers in his day and never got healed? Absolutely. So he comes to Jesus for a healing. Jesus says, oh, great, come here. And he spits in the ground. He makes mud pies. He opens up his eyes and rubs that mud in. And then he says, now go wash in the pool of Siloam. Can you imagine if he did that today? That blind man in America would have said, wait, wait, what are you doing? You don't put mud in my eyes. That's not, that's not right. Listen, I came to you for a healing. 
Not some crazy stuff. Walk to the Pool of Siloam. I hear a water fountain right next to me. Why did I have to go way over there and walk? Do you see what I'm saying? No way he would have done it. It's dumb. No obedience, no miracle. What about the incident? You know, there's a real-life incident that happened right after Jesus told this parable. You can look it up later. It's verse 11, but I'll tell you. It's the ten lepers. You know that story? Then the ten lepers come as Jesus is traveling right after this. And they keep their just distance because the law commanded that they do so. So they're being wise here. You can't go up to people. They can't. They're in a leper community, and it's contagious. And they say, Jesus, have mercy on us. They're yelling out to him. And Jesus says to them, does he say, you're healed? No. He says, okay, go and show yourselves to the priest. That's it. In other words, Jesus says, go ahead and go to the doctors. Now, why? Because the priests were the ones who diagnosed their leprosy in the first place and sent them out of the community into the leper colony, and they had to obey their priest. So now Jesus is saying, no, go back to your priest and go show yourselves to them again. Does that make any sense? To any of you as Americans, there's no way you're going to do that, right? Oh, 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 man, I thought, I know what, I, I know what you would have done. Because I, I, I know right now if I said, hey, let's have, you know, let's, you guys stand up. It would take me an hour to get all of you to stand up. Because you're like, no, I'm sitting. So what do you think the lepers would have done today? Today's lepers would have said, I'm, this doesn't make sense. I thought if I came to Jesus, I thought he would have healed us. Instead, he's telling us to go back to, guys, I'm just going to go home. I'm, this is silly. No obedience, no miracle. And almost every miracle, I mean, I didn't look at everyone, but I bet you that you could look at every miracle that Jesus performed. And in those miracles, we see Jesus giving commands and human beings obeying without understanding why. Go home, your daughter's well. She was just dead when I left or dying. What? Right? Get up and walk. Thank you. I, like, I haven't tried that. Reach out your arm. Go wash in the pool of Siloam. Go show yourselves to the priest. Go with the baskets and feed the groups of people. Why? Like, this is how Jesus worked. Why did he do that? Now listen to this. Please get this. Because miracles, because healing comes to servants. Healing comes to people who obey. Not just because Jesus wasn't going around healing because there was need. He didn't need to do it. He could just go to sleep and, you know, the healing dust could fall like mist at night and everybody would be healed. There's need everywhere. Jesus was finding places where he could ask for something and they would do it without understanding and then the miracle happened. Without explanation, without condition, they said, yes, I'll obey. Now, you tell me, could Jesus have done miracles without people obeying? Well, yes, he could have, but he chose not to. Now, what about you? I know many of you in here say, you know, and everybody says this, I think, but they say, I really want a healthy church. I really want a healthy church. God, increase our faith. Hmm? How about obey? I really want a better marriage. God, increase my faith. Give me a better spouse. Hmm? How about you start walking in faith and obeying God? You want a better job? You know, on and on and on. You go through your life with this. The issue is obedience. The issue is going down and obeying and submission to authority. And you'll find hope. You'll find healing. God will show up. 
You see, if you, here's what I want to point out. If you only obey when it makes sense, and I'm talking to now to, as parishioners, to a pastor, but certainly Jesus, like, I understand if you say, Don, you're human, right? I get that. But it still applies, and especially I do it with my authorities too. But especially it applies with your relationship with Christ. If you only obey when it makes sense to you, if you only obey when you agree with it, when you only obey when you understand it, if you only obey when you see how it prospers you, when you only obey when you know that it's the right timing for you and your family, that's not obedience, is it? That's just agreement. If you have to know why, if you're one of those people that has to see the playbook first, that's fine. Your life will lack power. The change that you're seeking won't happen. Because God doesn't want to be your consultant. God doesn't want to be your advisor. God doesn't want to be your buddy. God doesn't want to be your coach. He wants to be your master. And inside that relationship, you'll find the friend, the lover, the the groom, and all of the other relationships are inside of it. And and you're saying, American Christians oftentimes say this, "Uh, you know, I, I may take your advice, God. Let me think about it. Let me figure it out first. And on a human level, I understand completely where that comes from. I do that too. I'm just saying we can't, we can't say we're not getting healed when we're unwilling to obey. Don't call yourself an obedient servant if there are conditions to your obedience. A servant does what he or she is told to do. That's it. They don't need information. They don't need explanation. They don't need to know what they ought to. They don't need to know why they're doing what they're told to do. The strength and the miracle and the healing comes in the doing. Listen, how do you forgive somebody seven times a day? That's why the Bible, that's why he says it's crazy talk. That's why he said it's crazy. How do you forgive somebody seven times a day? How do you, how do you forgive one person who's broke your heart one time? How do you do it? Listen, you can wait for a feeling, increase your faith. It's not going to come. You just have to do it. And in the doing, you'll forgive because it's God forgiving. Ask Corey Ten Boom what it's like to forgive somebody who persecuted and killed her sister, Betsy, in a, in a concentration camp and came up to her and said, forgive me. She said, I, I didn't know how to do it, but I reached out my hand in obedience to Jesus Christ and forgiveness flowed through me. You see, it's not you. It's God, but you have to obey. How do you live a life that's free of sin? I don't know. It's impossible, right? Sure, it's impossible. Sure, it's impossible. But it starts by being obedient by saying, I will sin no more. And God can give you the power to do it. Not perfectly. But your commitment is perfect. You see, the Bible says all sorts of things. All sorts of things. And most Christians, not just American, most Christians sit on their hands and say, increase my faith. Right? Lord, I want you to, I, I, you know, the Bible says, forgive your brother and sister. Yeah, I know, I don't want to do that. God, can you help me? Right? What? Can you imagine if you're him? God, can you heal me first so I can believe in you more? Can you give me understanding first so I know where you're going with this? Can you give me insight first so I know if I can really trust you? Can you let me see the outcome first so I can do it? And Jesus says, oh, oh, I'm sorry. You must have misunderstood me. I'm looking for servants who will obey and do what I ask them to do when I ask them to do it. He, He can't even say, the healing will come later, which it will, because you'll grab onto that and you'll do it for the wrong reason. See? 
attitude of obedience as a servant comes first. And then, and then the power doors open, the miracle doors open, the understanding doors open after. But listen, if you need those doors open first, you're not a servant. What you really want when you come to Christ is you want a personal advisor. You want a coach, an encourager. Uh, you want a best-selling author. I don't know what you want. But you don't want God. You don't want a Lord. Okay? Now, have those two points hurt you? Welcome to the club. Because I hate them. And I fight against them. And I want you to know that I haven't mastered it and I'll never master it. But I know they're true. I'm simply the communicator of those points. So don't kill the messenger. But let me get to the nice ending. And this is a nice ending and you'll understand. A Christian is also somebody who understands the primary motivation for obedience. Up till now in this sermon, if there were any legalists in here, they've loved this sermon. Oh, they have. I mean... I'm talking old talk right now for the first two points, right? People that are over 50, they're saying, hey, finally, we're talking about obedience, master, primary relationship, attitude of obedience. It's not about happiness. It's not about understanding. It's not about self-fulfillment. Boom, boom, boom. Thank you, Pastor. We need that in the church. And you're right, we do. But wait, but wait, but wait. You see, we've talked about the engine, but we haven't talked about the gas. See, what I've been talking about is your engine, but... But why do we do things that we do? Why do we obey? <clears throat> and the next story for me holds the key to that. The next story is about the lepers. And if you read that story, <clears throat> there are ten lepers. They all go away. And then they're healed along the way. Remember that? And they're all healed. And one comes back. And he throws himself down in complete submission and obedience to Jesus. And he says, Jesus, I give you my life. Now, it's not exactly what the text says, but that's what he's doing. He's taking the, the position of a submissive servant, and he's saying, because of what you've done for me, I will go where you go. I'll do what you want me to do. I'll say what you want me to say. I'll do. I am, my life is yours now. You purchased my life. Now, why did that leper do that? Do you think he was trying to impress Jesus or obligate Jesus? Was he trying to force Jesus' hand? <clears throat> No, and it obviously wasn't because he wanted to earn the healing because he already had it. And that is why he did it. And that's why you're going to do it this morning. Because, not because so that you can be healed, but because you already have been. You see, the debt that we owe to Jesus is a debt of love. And a legalist in here will say, they'll get the part right, they'll say, you've got to do it. But here's where they get it wrong. They'll say, I need to do it so that I can get it. But a Christian says, I'm going to gladly do it because I already have it. I'm going to do it because I have it. Sometimes, sometimes these people look the same, by the way. But they're not. And you can always tell because one walks into the room and the air gets sucked out of it. And another one walks into the room and he looks at you as if to say, oh, there you are. They, they bring love. They bring joy. Think of it this way. There's only one person in the Bible who earned his salvation. And it wasn't you. It wasn't Adam. It was Jesus Christ. And because he's the only one who earned his salvation, he gave it up to us because we couldn't earn it. So if you think of it that way, let me, let me speak to the legalist now. There's nothing honorable, even if it feels like it, there's nothing honorable about looking at that gift, at that work of Jesus Christ on the cross and saying, wow, that's amazing, but listen, no thank you to all of it because I can do some of this too. Let me do this. Let me carry some of this too. I can earn a little bit. 
you, you, you may as well be spitting in the face of Jesus. He says, it's finished. You can't do it. I did it all for you while you were still sinners. I died for you. And a Christian understands the difference in duty that's born from love and duty born from a desire to earn it. And that's why the scripture is so important to me. That's why I love Christ so much. And that's why I want you to know what I'm talking about. Because listen, this, I don't know, you know, this, it's easy to make every scripture about salvation. But I know, I know this. I know that 10 lepers left, one came back, and they were all healed, right, of leprosy. Now, they all obeyed a little, didn't they? They all went when Jesus said go, and they were all healed. So I don't know. I'm not going to get into to know if that scripture means that those other nine if that's a parable that they're still saved, like saved for eternity or not, I don't know. But what I do know is when that one then, compelled by that great healing, came back and he threw himself down at Jesus, you know what Jesus said? He says, your faith has made you well. And to me, I read that and I say, yes, because he understood, one of the ten understood the great work of Jesus, one of the ten came back and then Jesus says, now you're truly well. And, and then Jesus, did Jesus burden him? Did Jesus say, now go and I'm going to put Ten Commandments on you. You're going to have to do everything right and I want you to go. You're going to work. No, he said, now go. And he was bound to him in obedience, but it wasn't a burden. And that's what we have to know. We have to serve, to be dutiful, to be obey him because he saved us first. John Newton wrote this, and I agree with it. He says, our pleasure, listen to these words, our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. To see the law by Christ fulfilled, talking about the cross, and hear his pardoning voice transforms a slave into a child and duty into choice. Let me just read that again. To see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice transforms a slave into a child and duty into choice. I think if you're a Christian, you'll say, the least I can do, the least I can do is give him my life because he saved mine. Let's pray. Dear Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for this congregation. Thank you for being able and for being willing to work through a sermon and a message to meet us where we're at and to help transform our souls. Father, we pray, we pray that we would understand more and more what it means to receive a faith that comes, to, that comes from you and is put solely on you that saves us. We pray that you would help us to understand what it means to enter the kingdom and to be compelled to, to get this relationship right so that we, we don't make mistakes in how we enter in, so that we're not uh, disappointed later or fall away to the wayside because we had unfair expectations, because we never really wanted a Savior. We never really wanted a Lord. We just maybe wanted a, an inheritance. And our real inheritance was here. The thing that we really wanted was here. We just wanted a plan B. Father, help us to make you plan A, plan B, plan C. Help us to take all of the chips that we have, all of the chips that we have on different tables in our lives, on family and job and success and integrity and importance and doctrine and, and whatever those chips are that we just bring them all together and we bring them to your table and we give them to you and we say, in you alone I place my trust 
and you alone I give my life. And, and Father, we do that, and we're healed, and then we get up and we walk away, and we become obedient slaves to you, but much more than that. We're your bride, we're your friends, we're, we're joint heirs, we ha- we're witnesses in the kingdom, we, we live eternally with you, we're brothers to you and sisters to you as well. Uh, Father, there's so much more in that relationship, but help us to get it right first. We love you so much. Thank you for the cross. It's in your name we pray. Amen.